Well, thank you all so much. You are so kind. And as Erica referred to, I think that uh, I include Pastor Gabe and Judy with Debbie and me as being the most blessed people because we have been given a huge honor in being able to serve God and serve you and, and blessed because we've gotten to know people we never would have gotten to know. And you've become just great gifts to us. So we are the most blessed people and we are so thankful for it. So we are rapidly moving towards the holiday season, which means we get pretty busy. Um, you realize that you're less than a month away from Thanksgiving? You're like, what, what, what? Are you ready? Some of you are, you know, some of you are like, yeah, I've got it all down. Got all the plans, got everybody contacted, it's all good. Then some of us are like, I'll be working on this till the day of. But it's the same thing with, with we're less than two months away from Christmas. Again, we've got two groups. One group is, I got it dialed in. I'm good, no problems. And then there are those of us that we will be working up to Christmas Eve. And, and that's, we have a sense of time, but sometimes time gets away from us. We get our plans set and then we don't always work the plan and things happen. And yet, as much as we prepare for Thanksgiving or Christmas or birthdays or whatever it is, the Bible tells us that there's something we're supposed to be preparing for. And that's the return of the Lord. He's coming. And it's more important than celebrating Christmas. It's more important than Thanksgiving. But he's coming back for who? The church, the bride, without spot or wrinkle. The glorious, victorious church. And every one of us sit here and we realize that there's some adjustment that needs to happen in our lives. This is, this is the church that is glorious and victorious without spot or wrinkle. And there are things in my life, things in our lives that need to be adjusted to be prepared for the return of the Lord. As a matter of fact, in 1 John chapter 2, verse 28, we've been learning about abiding, and it's so important. It's what helps prepare us for what's coming. Uh, John says, and now, little children, abide in him. It's talking about abiding in Jesus. We've been learning about abiding, how important that is and the aspects of it and, and what it produces and, and what we can count on. But it says, that when he appears, we may have confidence and not be ashamed before him at his coming. When he appears. When the Lord appears, we're going to see him like we've never seen him before. He's going to be completely holy. Whenever, whenever people saw it, just angels, they'd fall down as dead because they realized the difference between them and that being. And, and seeing God absolutely perfected and holy and 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 in our we being in his presence the uh, amplified says it this way and now little children abide live remain permanently in him so that when he is made visible we may have and enjoy perfect confidence boldness assurance and not be ashamed shrink and shrink from him it is coming the uh 
message translation, that last part says, then we will be ready for him when he appears, ready to receive him with open arms with no cause for red-faced guilt or lame excuses. You know what that's about. We stand in the presence of a holy God and we recognize, yeah, there should have been some things I adjusted before I saw them. We all have that. And, and when I, I read that in the message, it was one of those moments in time where I just was taken back to years and years ago around Christmas time. Because in our house, Christmas was the most important, the biggest celebration. And uh, my mom, my grandparents, my dad, all of us just put all sorts of effort into Christmas. There was food and decorations and, and, you know, my mom would decorate everything. I mean, everywhere you'd look, you'd see some new little decoration. And they'd plan the menu and food and the presents. And uh, my brother and I were somewhat involved in that. We really didn't care that much about the decorations because we had our eye on something. It was the presence. And so our, our role, self-appointed, that was a very big part of Christmas was hunting. You may say, did you go out and hunt for your food? No, 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 no. Hunted for presents. My brother and I would start looking all over the house for the gifts that were going to be given out. And uh, we were relentless. I'm serious. We were so relentless that every year, for a number of years, we found every one of our presents before Christmas ever happened. Exactly. My parents were so disappointed. My grandparents, all of them, were like, you found these before you opened these with us? Yeah. Yeah, we want to see what we were getting. Which was totally selfish. Because we robbed them of the opportunity to watch us with joy open up these gifts that they had spent time and money on and be able to enjoy that first sight of them. And so we were so concerned about us and not concerned about anybody else but us that we would find these things. And year after year, this would happen until one year. And all of a sudden, my dad was not known for building things. I mean, he could, he could, he could make things, but he... It wasn't his best skill. And we heard from the basement my dad doing something. And so we went down the basement, and my dad had built a cage. I mean, a, a cage. Two by fours that were tied into the floor joists. There was wire around it. There was a door, and there was a lock on the door. We went down, and we're like, what's this for? You know what this is for. What's this for? This is for the presents. You're not going to see them this year until we all see them. Which, I understood what he said, but what happened in my brother and myself was he had thrown down a challenge. <laughs> and as time went on, we would see these, these boxes in there, and and. They were just plain boxes. There was nothing that we could read that would tell us what were in them. And so we, 
we tried every way we could to get into this cage. And my dad had done a very good job. And we got down. It was, it was crunch time. And we're headed towards Christmas Eve. And my grandparents are at the house, both sets of grandparents, my mom's and my dad's. Mom and dad, and everybody's asleep. And my brother and I, we, lit, we slept in bunk beds, got up in the middle of the night. We had tried to pick the lock. We had tried to take the door off. And we knew there was just one way to get in. We found my dad's hacksaw. I'm not proud of this. Because, do you know, this was absolutely selfish. It was just about us. What we wanted, when we wanted it, and how we wanted it. And no regard for anybody else. And so we got down in the basement. My brother held the flashlight. And I'm sawing away as quietly as I could. And we're just sawing away and... and we're both getting tired. We're, he's taking turns sawing, I'm sawing, and it's not going fast. I don't know what they make those locks out of, but you can't saw them quick. And so I'm sawing away, and we were so focused on the lock, we didn't realize. And all of a sudden, the lights went on. Yeah. And we turned around to see... My grandmother and grandfather, my mom, my grandmother and grandfather, my dad, all looking at us. Now, when it talks about shrinking back and being red-faced with guilt and lame excuses, honest, I can't even believe I tried to pawn this off on. The, my dad said, what are you doing? Why even ask? You know what I'm doing. So if you're going to ask that kind of question, I'm going to give you an answer. Well, I saw a mouse go in here, and I didn't want to see it disturb anything. And they knew that wasn't true. I'm lying now. I'm trying to do all this selfish stuff. And, and I didn't say this in the first service, but what they ended up saying was, if you're going to do this, we're not going to buy presents. High motivation. Never did it again. Dad never had to lock the door on the cage. But why? Why? Because it was all about me. All about my brother. Not about anybody else. And that's absolutely the opposite of what Christmas is about. It's absolutely opposite of what the kingdom of God is about. And, and we've been learning about abiding and how abiding is so important. It, it's it's Without God, what we end up doing is just being self-oriented, self-focused, self-serving people. That's what people without God are. The first thing that the people, Adam and Eve, became aware of after sin was themselves. They were naked. And from that time, we just are so caught up with self. And without God, that's the way we will live our lives out. But that's why abiding is so important. We're holding on to God. We're reaching out, letting go of everything else, reaching out for God 
to remain and to make a home in and to be continuously present with because that's what abide means. One of the, one of the definitions of abide means to marry. And we're reaching out to God so that he can fill us with him. And that's what we need. We need to be filled with God. Because without God, we'll not be able to, to give people, to, to impart to people what they need. Today, people need love. They need hope. They need peace. They need joy. They need people to be patient and kind with them. But without God, we won't be. As a matter of fact, in the book of Judges, the book of Judges was a book that was written dealing with Israel, revealing how Israel was supposed to follow God, was supposed to rely on God, was supposed to allow God to have his way in their lives and, and that they would obey and follow him. And they would do it for a while and then they'd get off track. And when they got off track, God would send a judge to tell them how they had gotten off track and to get back on track. And then they would get back on track and and, and they would stay there for a while, keep tracking with God, and then they get off track again. They'd get, they'd get detoured or distracted with stuff like we do because we get off track at times. And, and it says this in Judges uh, 21, verse 25, and it says this a couple of times in the book of Judges. In those days there was no king in Israel, everyone. Now, how many of you know the... the the Bible doesn't embellish. It says everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. It's, it's a lot like the times we live in today. We live in times today where people are just doing what they want to do, what they think is right. I've never seen so many people. We were, Debbie and I were driving the other day. We're watching people run red lights and stop signs. And, and when we disregard what is out there for safety and for everybody's goodness, we become a danger to ourselves and to other people. And it's becoming more dangerous to live in the world we live in. And it's not just, it's not just traffic signals and things like that. It's life. If, if people see someone that's not doing what they want or what they're doing, they're going to say, you're wrong. You need to change. Because everybody is doing what's right in their own sight. But why? What does the scripture say was the reason they, everyone did what was right in their own eyes? There was no king. There was no one in their lives that was more important, more influential, more valuable than themselves. Their reference point was them. And so everything related to them. But when there is someone that's more valuable, more important, more influential, then we yield. And who is that supposed to be in our lives? Yeah, God. But how many times do we have God at the top of our, our life, the priority in our life, and then something comes up and it takes priority over God? And we have to fight to keep God right where he is because what is it in our lives that will enable us and impart to us and empower us, giving us wisdom, 
and grace and everything we need to be able to deal with whatever it is that just popped up. There's nothing but God. God is the one that is an ever-present help in our time of need, in our time of trouble. But if we're not abiding, we're moving something else into that prioritized point in our lives that should never change, which is God. And all of a sudden, our lives are not what God intended them to be because we end up going back to selfish ways. We want what we want when we want it. But when we abide in God, when we reach out for Him and Him more and before anything else, and He begins to fill us, all of a sudden, it's God that we're saturated with, not self. And when we're saturated with God, when we get squeezed by the world, it isn't the self stuff that comes out. It's the God stuff. The love and the joy and the peace and the kindness and the patience. The gentleness, the generosity that we all need and the world needs to see in Christians. Because too many times they, they know we're, we say we're Christ followers, but they see nothing different coming out of us than what's coming out of them. And there should be a vast difference. Because when God fills us, this is the creator of the universe. Created everything seen and unseen. He lives in us. And that should cause our lives to be radically different. But it's not just about carrying the presence of God with us. It's about having God be the priority in our life. And so this, was, this is about no king in Israel. Everybody did what was right in their own sight. And in our society today, there's no one more important to many people than themselves. And it shouldn't be that way with us. And so we're going to look today, because when we talk about kings in Israel, they, they, there was a point in time where they said, God, we want a king. We're going to look at this and, and learn some things about why it's important to abide, to have God as our king. And so before we do, I just want to pray. So if you'd bow your heads, Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your presence. There's no place we can go without you being there. But Father, it's not just about your presence. It's about us recognizing our need for your participation. Us recognizing that we need to prioritize you before anyone or anything else. And allow you to truly have your way in us and through us. Father, today we thank you for your word. That, Father, is a light unto our path and a lamp unto our feet. That is truth that sets us free. That is life and health to those who find it. Today, Father, you have something for every one of us. And, Father, as, as I speak what you have for me to speak, I pray that each person here and those online would hear in all their hearing, hear what you have specifically for them. That rhema word 
that word that will impart grace and empower victory. Preparing us for whatever we're going to face. We thank you for the person of Holy Spirit who will remind us of your word and empower us to live this abundant life. We thank you for the good work that you've begun in us, that you're faithful to complete. Continue today to take us from glory to glory as we look to you and listen for you and align with you. In Jesus' name, and everyone said. So where Israel received this king, it, it is in 1 Samuel chapter 8. Now, this is after Israel has gone through the wilderness, been delivered from Egypt, gone through the wilderness. Now they're, they're, they're following God, but they're also seeing what's going on in, in, in the world around them, in other nations. And how many of you know we're, we're looking a lot to what's going on in other people's lives? More than ever before. Because of all the electronic platforms that people are posting what their lives are like. Now, how many of you know that what's being posted is not the whole truth? That I have never seen anybody post, and I, I, don't, I don't have Facebook, I don't have, you know, a lot of these because I don't have time. I really don't. You may say, well, you're not interested in anybody else's life. Yeah, I'm interested in their lives, but I want to interact with them, not just look at what's going on. Because what they've found is a lot of things that are being posted cause FOMO. Fear of missing out. People are watching what somebody else is doing and they're saying, oh, I'm not getting that. I don't have that. And, and we look at these snapshots in people's lives, what they have chosen to cull through and put up, and it seems to always be like, Jeremy was talking about not reality. This is not real. How many times do you see train wrecks on these people's posts? You don't. Because nobody wants anybody else to know anything's going wrong. But it does. It does. And so we look at somebody's life and we want what they have. But we don't know what it took for them to have it and we don't even know if it's real. And all of a sudden, we're, we're wanting something we don't have, and so we're getting envious of this person over here, whether we know them or not. And whether you know it or not, envy is a sin. And we are, we are tempted all the time to envy other people. And I will tell you, if you want an antidote for envy, it is gratitude. The moment you begin to look at somebody else's life and, and what they have or what they're doing or, or anything, don't, don't keep focused on that. That's going to make your life miserable. You're going to feel empty. And that's what the enemy wants. You need to stop, shut it down, and begin to consider what's been done in your life. That's why I so, so appreciate the song about the goodness of God. Because I have lived in the goodness of God. God has been 
so good to me. But it's not just me, it's all of us. Because if I never received anything apart from what Jesus came to give me, eternal life, salvation, that one aspect of what Jesus gave, <laughs> I have more than I deserve. And the truth is we all have more than we deserve. And the moment we begin to be thankful for what we look around and see in our lives. And I promise you, you will never completely see all the goodness God has shown you. Not this side of heaven. But one day we're going to see how good God was. How kind God was. How merciful God was. How loving God was. How gentle and patient God has been with us. And we're going to be overwhelmed by the goodness of God. But we live in a world that is always looking for what somebody else has instead of looking at what we've been given and thankful. And that breeds that, that contempt and that uh, just, it's a restlessness, always looking for more. And so Israel was looking for more. And in 1 Samuel chapter 8, starting in verse 4 and 5, Samuel was a prophet. He was used by God to help guide Israel. And uh, Israel was experiencing and seeing what was going on in other nations. And, and the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said, Look, you're old and your sons don't walk in your ways. Now make us a king to judge us like what? All the nations. You're old. We need a king, just like all the nations. Now, that may not seem like a big deal, but it's a huge deal. Because Israel is saying, we want to be like all the nations that don't know you and don't serve you. Was that a good choice? No. Who, who was Israel? Who did God say Israel was going to be for him? A special people. But you know what? It's not just Israel. It's any person that would choose to believe in Christ. Every person is valuable to God. But there we step into the kingdom of God. And in Titus, it tells us, chapter 2, verse 14, he gave himself for us that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify us for himself, his own special people. You know, that's one of the things that happens when we start viewing what's going on in everybody else's life. And we think, oh, I'm not special. They're special. I'm not. You are special. You are valuable. You are wanted, desired, longed for by God. So that when we choose to reach out to him and abide, he can flood us and fill us. And cause our lives to be exactly what he intended before sin. Which we can't even begin to comprehend. But here, here is Israel saying, we want to be like everybody else. Why would the extraordinary people that God is with and God is 
providing for and guiding and protecting. Why do these extraordinary people want to become ordinary? Because they're deceived. They're thinking that that's better than what we have. And, and what it's called is a green grass syndrome. People are looking over there, seeing what looks greener than where they are. And do you know, if you literally, you go to the mountains or you go to the hills and you stand in one place and you look down, it may look really sparsely uh, vegetated by green. And you look over there and because of the angle of what you're looking at, you're looking this way instead of this way, it looks fuller. But when you get over there, it might not be, even be as green as where you were. And you spend all the effort and all the time to get somewhere else that isn't as good as where you were. But you can be assured as a child of God, if you and I will allow God to have the preeminence, the first place in value, in rank, and in influence in our lives, he's not going to take us to places that appear but do not deliver what they appear to be. God's going to take you from glory to glory ever-increasing glory. And we can be assured of that because the Bible says every good and perfect gift comes from the Father above. He's given us everything that pertains to life and godliness. That He works everything out for good. There is no one and no thing that will ever do that without fail except for God. He is the one. And so they're asking, they're saying, we want a king, we want a king, we want a king, we want to be like everybody else. But who was their king? Who was Israel's king? Yeah, God was. And yet they're looking at God and we don't, we know we have you as our king, but we want a king like them. And God was about to warn them about their choice. Because we all know that every choice we make isn't always the best. I need to be honest with you. Because it's the truth about all of us. And, and yet, who is... We sang it this, this morning. Who's the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords? Jesus. It's the King of kings and the Lord. He's above every other that could ever, will be, or was. There's no one like him. And yet we look around and we long for things that are less because we have been deceived, just like Adam and Eve where they were deceived, and they ended up in sin, and that's what happens with us. We get deceived, we get off track with God, we get into sin, and what does sin produce? Death. And what the enemy does in those times is he steals, he destroys, and he kills. And that's what sin does in our lives. It robs us of the things God has for us that are better than anything or anyone else could give us. And yet we get deceived and we go that direction. Going on in this chapter, we see what happens and what transpires in verse 6 through 8, or 6 through 9, it says, 
this thing displeased Samuel when they said, give us a king to judge us. Now, before we go any further, what do you do when things displease you? What is your first choice to do when, when we get displeased or we get upset or we get disappointed? Because Samuel shows us what we need to do. So Samuel prayed to the Lord. Why? That's that abiding. He's reaching out to God. As much as he wants to reach out to the Israelites and say, you guys, you knuckleheads, what are you doing? You're leaving the best for something less. And yet he doesn't address them. Uh, Jeremy and I were recently at a, a, a pastor's gathering in Massachusetts, and uh, uh, there was one man who had been in ministry many, many years, and he said this phrase that just stuck. And it's a simple phrase, and it's something we all know. Pray before you say. If we would just do that, if we would pray, if we would turn to God, because if we're abiding in him, he is our first turn. He's not something we do down the road after we've said all the things we said that we wish we didn't say. He's the first one. And so Samuel turned to God and he began to pour out his heart to God. And the Lord said to Samuel, heed the voice of the people in all that they have said to you. For they have not rejected you, they have rejected me. That I should not reign over them. According to all the works they have done since the day that I brought them up out of Egypt, even to this day, with which they have forsaken me and served other gods, so they are doing, so they are doing to you. Now heed their voice, however, you shall not solemn, you shall solemnly forewarn them and show them the behavior of the king who will reign over them. So God's saying to Samuel, you know what? This is what they've done. This is what they've done all the way along the line. They've rejected me. And now they want something less, but they don't know what they're asking for. But how many of you know God is not going to stop you from getting what you're going after? Well, you may not know that, or I'm going to tell you that. God will never force you to take what he has, which is always best. He has given us freedom of choice. The moment we have that, he is not going to stop us even when we make bad choices. Because if that were the case, we'd never sin. And we do. And so he, he says, now, here's what you do. I'm not going to stop them from getting what they want. And so warn them about what they're about to get. You know, God warns us all the time about the results of our actions. Through his word, he tells us to do these things, don't do these things, but he still gives us the freedom to choose. And in that moment, we know we're not supposed to. The moment my brother and I knew we weren't supposed to go down and try and saw off that lock, we did it anyways. Even though we had known that it was going to hurt our parents, they couldn't trust us. Our grandparents, they wanted to be able to trust us. And we didn't care. 
because we wanted what we wanted. And we still have that tendency as human beings. And God's going to warn them. And, and the next verses, verse 10 through 18, he lists, and I'm going to read through it real quickly, and he lists what's going to go on. I mean, he's, he's telling them, look, you don't know what you're going to get. I do. Listen up. This is God's heads up. Because their heads weren't up. They were down. So Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people who asked him for a king. And he said, this will be the behavior of the king who will reign over you. He will take. We're going to just stop there. That's not a good way for this to start. The first thing that God points at and says, this king that you want so bad, he's going to take. And, and it, it begins to unravel in eight verses, the next eight verses, six times it says, he will take. But it's more than just six things that are indicated. There is so much here, and let's look at it. He will take your sons and appoint them for his chariots and to be his horsemen, and some will run before his chariots. That sounds like fun. And he will appoint captains over his thousands and captains over his fifties and will set some to, the pl to plow his ground and reap his harvest and some to make his weapons of war and equipment for his chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers, cooks, and bakers. He will take the best of your fields, your vineyards, and your olive groves. He will give them to his servants. He will take a tenth of your grain in your vintage and give it to his officers and servants. And he will take your male servants, your female servants, your finest young men and your donkeys and put them to his work. He will take a tenth of your sheep and you will be his servants. And you will cry out in that day because of your king whom you have chosen for yourselves. And the Lord will not hear you in that day. Now, let's just think about God as their king. Was God a taker or a giver? Because that's who God is. Our God is a God who gives. He so loved, he gave his only son. And he has continued to give and give and give and give and give. Because when you are love and when you love, you give. But this king they were asking for, he took and took and took and took. And that's what happens in the world we live in. People without God are takers, consumers. That's what this is all about. This is all about what we can get. But we, in the kingdom of God, we move from being a consumer to a contributor. God has for us to contribute because God has said it's more blessed to what? Than receive. God's not looking just to get something from you. He's looking for you to live on another level. 
that is absolutely unknown on a continuous basis to the people of this world without God because we fall back into that self, selfishness. And so he tells them all this, and he says, and you will cry out in the day, that day because your king whom you have chosen for yourselves. So he's telling them, this is going to be a disaster. You're going to be unhappy about this. And then it says, and the Lord will not hear you in that day. That doesn't sound like God because the Bible tells us God's ear is open to the cry of the righteous. God always hears us. But God does not always respond to what he hears. What were they going to be doing? Crying. You know, there's a difference between just crying and crying out to God. Sometimes we just cry because things are not what we wanted. And we're all about, I don't want this, I don't want this, I don't want this. Take this away. And our crying is relief. We want relief. Check this out in your prayers. Are, are, are your prayers more towards relief? Because if they are, God's not going to act on relief. God's moved by faith. When Israel was in Egypt, things got worse for them. When Moses went in to try and deliver them, and Pharaoh started to make things more difficult, longer hours, less things to work with, harder, and they cried out. They were just crying. But it wasn't until they cried out to God that God came in. Unless we invite God in, he's not going to just come in and do his thing in our lives. This is where we have this friendship, this partnership where we're working together. We're looking to him. We're holding on to him. We're reaching out for him. We're crying out for him. In the New Living Translation, or, yeah, in the New Living Translation, it says in verse 18, when that day comes, you will beg for relief. This is a better translation because that's what they wanted. They wanted relief. But God is not just going to give us relief. God can't turn things around until we turn around. We can't keep doing what we've been doing and ask God to make it right. If we're in sin, we can't keep sinning and have God work it for good. What it requires is what it required for us to come into the kingdom. Repentance. Repentance. The word repent means to change our mind, which then influences our life. We change what we're doing. When we change our thinking, we change what we do. And so they needed to repent. When we come into the kingdom, we have to repent. We have to turn around. We have to change our mind that we want to run our own life because we're doing such a stellar job. To somebody who can really do a better job, and that's the Lord. And so we turn from running our own life, being Lord of our life, we turn to Christ, we repent, we turn to Christ and receive him as our Lord. And then, only then can God begin that restoration process. Only then can God redeem. 
See, salvation is there for everyone. There's no one that Jesus didn't die for, but not everyone's going to heaven. Not everyone is going to receive salvation because they're not willing to acknowledge what they've done is not right and they need to repent, turn, and go another way. Until we repent, God can't redeem. God can't restore because we're still going that direction. And I will tell you that in my life, I struggled with this for many, many years. Because, first of all, repentance has a bad, many, in many of our minds, repentance has a bad connotation. Repentance is something that we as Christians do every day. Well, why is that? Because we do the wrong stuff every day. The Bible tells us if we confess our sin to God, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sin and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we confess... What does it require for us to confess? We acknowledge we did wrong. Man, I'm accountable. I realize I did wrong. God, I'm telling you, I did wrong. I ask for your forgiveness. And what's God able to do? He forgives us. But how does he forgive us? Because, you know, we we forgive each other, but we kind of hold lists going. You did this and this and this and this and this. God doesn't do it that way, and we're not supposed to either, with us or anybody else. And when in my life, when I was really struggling with addictions in my life, strongholds in my life of alcoholism and pornography, man, I can't tell you how many times I would repent. I would get to that place. I was so broken and, and so hurt because... I was hurting other people in my life. I was hurting God, and I didn't want to do that. And I'd go to God, and I'd say, God, God, I ask you to forgive me. Please forgive me. And I would get rid of all this stuff. I'd get rid of the alcohol. I'd get rid of the pornography and and clean house. And, uh, you know, I'd sense that cleansing that God would do. And be so excited about what was ahead. And, you know, I'd be walking towards God, but I'd look back. Not physically. I would just think about this stuff. And I wouldn't cast down those thoughts. I'd let them start to stay in place. All of a sudden, I'd find myself going back to this stuff. And after a long period of doing this, this was years where I'd repent, I'd really turn around, I'd realize the way I'm going is not the right way, i got to go another way. Turn around and head towards God and get things together. God would help me and all of a sudden I'd find myself back doing the stuff I used to do. And one day I, I really was, I was very, very disappointed in myself, very upset with myself, very tired. And I just, I went to God and I said, I don't know why you'd ever forgive me. Because I did it again. I'm sorry, I did it again. And I don't know, I do not know to this day how God made me aware. Or the Spirit of God made me aware. But I became very aware of my interaction with God and how 
I so wanted to do right, but I kept doing wrong. It's like what it says in Romans chapter 7, where he says, I, I wanted to do, but the things I wanted to do, I didn't do, and the things I didn't want to do, I did do. But then it, the next chapter talks about how Holy Spirit helped. And I, I'm sure it was Holy Spirit making me aware that when I went to God and I said, I've done it again, God was very, very direct about saying, I know what you've done, but I don't have a memory of what you've done before. And I was just, I didn't understand. I'm repenting of the things I've repented for all these years and I keep falling back into. Not falling, I went back into it. And God's word is so good and God is so good because he got me to the place where the Bible says God removes when we repent. God removes our sin as far as the east is from the west. And the amazing thing about that is if you travel east on our globe, you'll never get to west. There's not a place where it says, now this is west. So you're always, it's always being removed. You'll never catch up to it again. It'll never catch up to you again. And then the Word of God says that he throws our sin and the memory of our sin into the sea of forgetfulness. He does not remember it anymore. And when I went to him and said, I've done what I've done again, it was like for him, because he chose to deal with my sin and my repentance the way he does, it was like the first time. And he was willing and able to forgive me and cleanse me. But it's only by the power of God and the grace of God that we can stay free of this. We've got to hold on to God. We've got to abide in God. Because we need to be strong in him and the power of his might. But this aspect of repentance, it, it is a great thing. It is a cleansing thing. It is a restorative thing. It's something we all need. It's not a bad thing. It's a God thing. And it's what helps us from being buried under the guilt and the shame and the weight of the things that we choose when we get off base because we think we know better. And we get back into that self-mode. That repentance is about acknowledgement and accountability for our choices made and indicating a regret for them and a desire to be reconnected with God in, in fellowship. Our relationship never ends, but it, it really damages and hinders our fellowship, but God restores it. And then in the last two verses, I'm going to close with this. Verse 19 and 20, it says this, Nevertheless, the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel. Now, whose voice was it? Yeah, Samuel spoke, but whose words was he, Samuel speaking? God. But it's a lot easier to say, oh, well, I'm not listening to Sam. Because we can say Sam doesn't know what he's talking about. But we can't say God doesn't know what he's talking about. And so they, did, they refused to obey the voice of Samuel and they said, no. But we will have a king over us that we may be like all the nations that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight for us. 
You know, when it says God won't hear us, he won't hear our cries, but he'll hear our repentance. But he also sees our rebellion and our foolishness. And he won't stop us from going whatever way we choose to go. And so they're about to get a king like they've never had before. And we're going to see what happens. We're actually going to look at the first two kings that Israel had. And we're going to see one king that was very much like a person who doesn't abide. Their whole focus is themselves and what's important is different than having God being important. And then we're going to look at another king that in his life, as without being perfect, because there's none of us that are perfect. God doesn't expect for perfection, but he does expect progress. And so in that, we're going to see a person who wasn't perfect and actually did some really amazingly bad things. And yet God, how God looked and what God was able to do through this person's life was amazing. I'm going to ask you to bow your heads because I want you to take a moment and just consider if you haven't before your need for God. We all need the Lord because without Him we will default back to just looking after and taking care of ourselves at everybody else's expense. And we become consumers and we're willing to sacrifice other people so we can get ahead. And that's the way of the world that we live in. But God has something better. God has for us to look to Him, to repent, turn from running our own lives, doing our own things that we think are good, that are best in our own eyes, but aren't, and turn to Him and entrust Him with our life, with everything in us and about us. If you've never trusted or invited Jesus to be Lord of your life, you're not just here or online by accident. This is a God incident. It's a moment in time where God's reaching out to you. He's always been reaching out to you. But it's, it's really pointed. He's inviting you to let go of your life and give it to him so that he can do in your life what you can or anyone else can. And so I'm going to invite you to pray today. We're all going to pray together. Invite you to pray and repent of just doing what you think is best and what you can do and receive God and what he can do. Let's pray this together. Heavenly Father, I thank you for your son Jesus who came into this world lived a sinless life, died on the cross for my sin, was raised from the dead, and sits glorious and victorious at the right hand of the Father. Today, Lord Jesus, I repent. I come to you, and I give you my life. 
Come into my life. Be Lord of my life. Cleanse me. Redeem my life. Restore my life to what you have. Thank you, Lord, for saving me. In Jesus' name, amen, amen, amen. Now, if you prayed that prayer here, let somebody know before you leave. You may say, well, that's a weird thing to do. I don't know anybody. I can guarantee if you talk to somebody and tell them that you receive Jesus as your Lord, they're going to rejoice with you. And we want to, too. Let one of us know, one of the pastors, one of the, the ushers. Um, online, if you prayed, let us know. Go to the website, reslifeny.org. Scroll down to where the prayer requests are. Let us know that you prayed. If you want us to pray for you by name, give us your name. And if you want us to contact you, give us some contact information. Now, before we leave, I want you to just sit there. You're doing a great job. But I want you to close your eyes. Because too many times we, we take the time. You guys have invested time today to be available to hear God's word. But sometimes we just run off before we get clarity on what it is that God spoke directly to us. And you may not have heard his voice. It may have been my voice. But God's going to make you aware that there's something for you. And so we're going to do what it says in the Psalms all throughout the Psalms. Selah. Pause and reflect. So, Father, right now I just pray that you'd make it clear to each one of us what it is that we need to take away from here today and apply to our lives and maybe realign, make some adjustments to our lives so we're tracking with you. You're having your way. Now, Lord, we thank you for that. We thank you that we don't have to be in this building to hear from you, to be guided by you, to be governed by you or guarded by you or provided by you. But, Father, we can have this happen any place at any time. And, Father, I thank you as we leave here today. We leave knowing that, Jesus, you are the King of kings and the Lord of lords. You are the one who is guiding and governing and guarding and providing for our lives. And today and each day this week as we go, we know that we are going with you and for you. We thank you for your presence in us by Holy Spirit. We thank you that you go ahead of us and prepare the way. You're our rear guard. You uphold us with your right hand of righteousness. And you cover us with your songs. Songs of life, songs of love. Songs of hope, songs of peace, songs of joy, songs of victory, because we are yours. We thank you, Father, for this in Jesus' name. And everyone said, Amen. have a great week.